Welcome to the Everything Coworking Podcast, where you learn what you need to know about how the world wants to work. And now your host, co-working space owner and trend expert, Jamie Russo. Welcome to the Everything Coworking Podcast, episode number 197. This is your host, Jamie Russo. Thank you for joining me today. So my guest today is Dave Cairns, and if you're on LinkedIn, you need to find Dave and follow him. His profile is in the show notes if you want to look him up. So Dave is known for button pushing on LinkedIn. Dave is a senior vice president in office leasing at CBRE, and he is all in on the future of office and how Flexspace is integrated into that and sort of some of the other big picture themes we talk a lot about in terms of work changing, work from anywhere, what is the real estate portfolio, you know, of a an enterprise company or a small business look like and Dave is in the middle of that. And this episode's important because many of the brokerage firms have their own co-working or flex brand, but most have few locations and brokers are a key marketing tool for co-working spaces that focus on offering private space. The tricky thing about brokers is a lot of brokers still don't really understand Flex, how to recommend it to their clients, how to get paid for referring their clients to Flexspace. So I wanted to talk to Dave and and chat with him. So Dave and I have never met in person, but I follow him on LinkedIn and, you know, we trade messages on that platform and he, you know, is really all about serving the end user in whatever that looks like is the right way. And in our conversation, I even asked Dave, hey, Dave, how do you get paid if this happens? And he said, I need to look into that. You know, right now he's really trying to figure out what's right for the end user and then, you know, how to get paid based on on how he puts them in the right location. So I just wanted to get his perspective on what the brokers are thinking CBRE is particularly interesting because they had launched their own Flex-based brand under the name HANA. Um, But at the time of this recording, they had recently announced that they made a 35% acquisition um, in Industrious, which was an investment of $200 million. And that investment was a big win for the co-working industry at large. Um, So it really kind of affirmed that there's a big future for flex in office space going forward. So um, quick note, if my discussion with Dave makes you curious about how to implement a better broker program for your co-working space, Kane Wilmot, CEO of IQ Offices, shared the details of his broker program and Kane was a broker before becoming a multi-site operator across Canada. He was on episode number 129 and we'll link to that in the show notes. And Real quick, before we dive into my conversation with Dave, we have just released our 2021 Coworking Tech and Tools Report, and I'll do a deep dive into the results in an upcoming episode. The guide is organized by tech and tool buckets such as marketing, member billing, conference room reservations, mail client lead gen partners, et cetera. It's 
organized to make it really easy to kind of compare across each category and figure out what others are using and what you might want to look at if you are looking to kind of augment your tech stack. And the guide is based on results from respondents of the survey that we distributed in December, as well as top picks from members of the Everything Coworking Flight Groups and Community Manager University. So you can grab your copy of the full guide at everythingcoworking.com forward slash tech and tools 2021. We will link up to that in the show notes. Okay, now for my conversation with Dave. Dave Cairns, thanks for joining me today. I have to um, admit, I was picturing you walking down the street with your phone mm. in front of you while walking your dog, since <laughs> I'm used to seeing your video. And then you showed up and you're in an office. And I was like, oh, perfect. And in a co-working space, you're in a spaces. Yes, yes. Um, it's nice to out- be here. And I have become known, I guess, for those videos. They're <laughs> sort of my brand. Um, but yeah, no, I'm in, a, I'm in a flex office space now. So um Suffice it to say, I'm a supporter. Totally. Um, I also have to admit, I've been a little bit envious of the free spirit of like COVID hair, <laughs> like windy, whatever. I have to like, you know, straighten the hair, put the makeup on. I don't think I could be as off the cuff as you. It's my, my, in my next life, I will be more relaxed about my videos, I think. Well, I can't be the counterculture real estate broker unless I <laughs> truly embody it, right? Good point. Excellent point. <laughs> totally. I love it. So speaking of who you are and, and what you do, so mm-hmm. Senior Vice President of Office Le- Leasing at CBRE, you also founded CBRE Forward, which I'd love to hear about. And mm-hmm. right, you're sort of the, as you put it, counterculture futurist of the office sector I know you from LinkedIn, which is mm-hmm. when we first started on our video, I was like, oh, we have not ever actually encountered each other before mm-hmm. live. So um, I know you from LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn as a platform because it's professional, it's less distracting, and I find I build actual relationships with people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of asynchronous collaboration occurs there which I think is something that our sector needs to embrace a little bit more to understand that collaboration and innovation can happen actually outside of four-walled spaces. Totally, um, yes. that's a separate issue. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'll just, maybe I can recap for you. I'm, uh, totally. I'm an office leasing broker based in downtown Toronto. Um, in, in Canada, you cover a cross-section of, of stuff. The market's big on a relative basis, but compared to some of the, the major U.S. cities, it's a little bit smaller. So I will work with like, startup companies looking for a co-working space for like two people all the way through to representing CIBC for all of their real estate needs across Canada, you know, managing their 5.5 million square foot portfolio with another partner of ours called uh, Blackwood Partners. So, and everything in between. Um, And, uh, you know, I focus a lot on the tech sector and then I have gotten really entrenched in the workspace as a service sector, spaces, service, flex office, whatever you want to call it. Maybe we need to narrow that down and just agree on something. Um, but <laughs> I find uh, myself doing the same thing, forward slash, like hyphen, forward slash, forward slash, mm-hmm. just to make everybody happy with the terminology. Yeah, for sure. So, so in that regard, you know, I've I've gotten the opportunity to help a uh, local Toronto-based sort of like innovation hub that really also had a, a flex office component to it. Go to London, England. That was really eye-opening for me. 
um, to help them go there um, and open up another one of those types of locations. I've gotten involved with a number of different enterprise uh, co-working type deals, flex deals, and then also I've done a little bit of uh, stuff with Convene, or at least trying to get them to come into the Toronto market. So, you know, I've learned a lot about this sector over the last probably four years. And I think that it would be naive to deny its critical importance in the future for both landlords and space operators and um, tenants, but more importantly, in facilitating the choice of individuals to basically do their best work wherever they may be deemed that to be. So um, how did you, you mentioned sort of for the last four years, you've been kind of into flex and serving operators and how did was there something specific that kind of drew you to like this different way of working and this idea of kind of hybrid model? Cause that's all pre COVID. Mm-hmm. What, what was it that like you said, yeah, I think this is right. I think this is where things are going and I'm going to spend some time on that. Yeah, it started. Um, there's a, there's a guy in Canada whose name is John Ruflo and he's actually a venture capital guy. He, he started, he founded a, a company called Omer's Ventures, which is connect. It's really interesting. It's connected to Omer's, which is a really large institutional pension fund in Canada. They have a they have a landlord, or sorry, they're they're they are a landlord under a, a banner called Oxford Properties, and then they have this VC arm called Omer's Ventures inside of it. So this guy John Ruffalo is a visionary. He founded this place I just mentioned called One Eleven, okay. which was um, a really niche and curated flex office product for uh, software service companies that have like up to 5 million in revenue or a certain amount of funding. And the idea was to like curate a group of founders in an ecosystem that could really help each other along. And so I talked to John about getting involved with 111 and it was there that he started to explain to me what he thought was really important, which is layering service on top of the physical infrastructure and trying to find a way for a landlord like Oxford Properties, who's got, you know, triple A class office buildings in the, you know, the best and greatest cities in the world. But how could they find a way to like take a startup company along a journey, you know, from 111 through to becoming an anchor tenant in one Mm -hmm. of their new developments, right? And, you know, that maybe involved a, a strategy of like purchasing assets with a specific tenant in mind. Or, or, or a niche of certain types of tenants. And maybe it starts in B quality assets and moves its way you know, up to AAA quality assets. Um, and so he just really opened my mind with that kind of thought process. And it was really interesting to listen to somebody who had knowledge of the real estate sector, but wasn't sitting inside of it and perhaps like, you know, yeah. be, beholden to yeah. the way that we all think. Um, and so that really blew my mind. I'll never forget sitting in a room with him, whiteboarding. He was whiteboarding this whole thing for me. And so obviously it makes sense to still get together in person. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. Yeah, that all, was really helpful. All great visionaries are big whiteboarders in my experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So anyway, that that sent me down this path. And then I actually even tried to help them open a location in, in London, England. We, we did actually open one. Um, and then I just got obsessed. And that led me to kind of getting involved with Convene. And I'll, I'll spare the story behind that. But I got involved with them and I met Ryan Simonetti and I was just so enthralled with him and his vision and the way they design spaces. And I walked in in New York and I'm like, wow, this is like where I want to work. Like I want to come to a place like this. Yeah. Um, and then where I really, really struck a chord with me was when I was working with a really large um, enterprise customer of mine in Toronto. And they basically came to us and they said, look, like we think we need 80,000 square feet of additional expansion space in Toronto, but we only really have visibility on about 15,000 square feet that we know we need today. Yeah. 
like <laughs> 15 to 80. <laughs> yeah. Like we yeah. think we need this like 80, but we don't really know. And like, do you have any ideas on how we can try and like solve for a solution that doesn't have us taking all 80 and basically carrying all this dead space? And so this is where CBRE's got an amazing group within C. It's called the Agile Advisory Practice Group. And they focus on helping customers solve these types of problems. And what we did is we RFP'd several flex space operators in advance of actually going to a landlord to talk to them about space options. And this just blew the lid off for me because we were we were going to them with the, the operator in tow and we were basically going to take maybe 15, 20,000 square feet. And then the balance, we were going to either separate out and the flex operator could just lease it directly from the landlord. But more likely we were going to you know, indemnify that entire 80,000 sublet it for simple terms to the flex space operator and then have predetermined dates where we could call chunks of that space. And in the meantime, we would allow them to sell it to the market provided that like, <laughs> okay, the, I see. Yeah. Provided yeah. that the layout of the space sort of generally made sense where there wasn't yep. too much cost, right. Yep. To, to modify it. And so the deal never actually happened. It didn't, it didn't happen because the deal structure wasn't one that excited the client. They just elected to not expand. <laughs> um, Okay. <laughs> but, but what I saw from that, though, this was where I was like, okay, here's a customer trying to solve their own flexibility needs for themselves. I'm like, this is never going to fly like yeah. 10 years from now. There's never going to be a world where customers don't start to put more pressure on the owner side to facilitate this stuff for them. Yeah. And then I just like started rolling. Like I just started becoming even more obsessed with this sector. Yeah, I mean, because the right, the tenant takes the liability, right? Their uncertainty is their own liability. And there's a huge gap between 15,000 and 80,000. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, you know, right, what is it? Well, they take the liability, but they take all the headaches and like everything. Like, it's just not how any other sector of like our economy works. It's just not how customer service works, like in any other sector. So I was just like, yeah. this is a huge gap. Like, and then, you know, the, the great players are all trying to basically sell to landlords. What we, what me and my friend Caleb Parker call full stack commercial real estate, which is, you know, an activated building from the minute you walk in the door, all the amenities, all the event and meeting space, and then, you know, a full suite of flex office products, right? Like if all that lives inside the building, you can do such a better job of helping a large company like Salesforce determine what they want to do with the remaining footprint that they want to take long-term. So that was just like where it all kind of started for me. So you had a couple of unique experiences that kind of put you in this mindset. So where do you sit sort of relative to most brokers in how about start with the Toronto market? Do they think you're crazy or <laughs> are they? I think there's a lot of people that maybe think I'm crazy, but I don't want to put words in there. And they might be right. But do they yeah. think you're crazy, you know, about your flex office view? Do they you know, are they starting to realize that there's opportunity to serve their customers in that way? Or tell me about your mindset versus kind of the, the average broker mindset. Yeah. Well, look, I think that I'm lucky in the sense that I've had those experiences, right. Um, To start with somebody outside the office sector, but with a really intimate knowledge of real estate, opened my mind to like, what a lucky you know, I helped create that outcome for myself, but that just set me down a different path. It was kind um, of organic, right? And it happened earlier and you had some time to buy into that. 
Yeah. And then I flew over to London, England, and I got to see like the, the premier flex market in the world. Right, right. Um, but truthfully, look, I'm gonna, I'll pat myself on the back. I mean, I've always been looking for holes and I've been like, I've been interested in where things always are moving, not where they are. So that's yeah. just like how I am. So naturally, I think I was always going to be this way. But to go to your question, like where are most brokers at? I mean, I think that they generally understand things like, you know, the predictions that every brokerage is making around flex office becoming something like 30% of like inventory in major cities around the world. You know, they might be able to, you know, cite the stat that like in 2019, half the lease new leases that got done in the 50 largest cities in the world were from flex office operators, not traditional tenants. Like they know these things, but I don't think that they can really truly wrap their heads around the importance of like, you know, being proactive about how to help these customers integrate flex into their strategy, right? Like there's a huge opportunity for, you know, global and multinational companies to do this. There's also a big opportunity for these small and medium-sized businesses, but I think going back to my example about how the full stack doesn't live inside the asset, I think the problem is a lot of these small, medium-sized companies, they do want their some of their own dedicated space. And so because they want some of their own dedicated space and there isn't like a flex off offering in the building, they can't really wrap their head around how they would you know, separate out something they want private versus like what they can lease flex. But enterprise, it's like a no-brainer. And there's, even with premiums, some significant savings that they can t- they can take on, right? Like, it's really not complicated to realize that if a company leases 80,000 square feet for 10 years and only needs 15,000 to start, that they're paying rent on a lot of debt weight, right? right. Like it, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And furnishing it and keeping the lights on and heating it or whatever. Yeah. Or sitting on it and waiting, but... Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So they're, you know, like everybody knows generally the importance of it and, you know, announcements like industrious uh, and the CBRE partnership are, I think, really great for everybody. Like they're great for you. They're great for the operators. They're great for educating yeah. brokers, but there's a long way to go. And then look, there's definitely a lot of people out there that I think are fearful of the flex office sector and think like, oh, well, is this disrupting what I do? And, you know, yada, yada, yada. And like, I would argue that on some level it is disrupting what we do. There's, there's no way of getting around that. But I think that if you are really good at what you do, you'll always find a way to add value. And I think there's there's human touch element that I think isn't going away for quite some time. Whether transparency creates the ability for some of these transactions to just like be done, you know, digitally or with no broker, like, look, if that happens, that happens. I'm I'm ready for that possibility, but I, I'm also trying to find ways to swim upstream and help some of the biggest companies in the world. And I think that there's there's going to continue to always be a need for a broker for the foreseeable future with any transaction that's meaningful in terms of its like obligations. Good brokers, well-informed brokers who strategically understand how to make recommendations. So tell us about, you posted mm-hmm. on LinkedIn earlier that um, your, your um, kind of what, how did you word it earlier? Your your disruptive nature on LinkedIn sort of won you some attention and a client. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit? Some of it may be, you know, confidential, but mm-hmm. sort of the overall project and what you're doing for them as an example of your mm-hmm. role as a broker in helping a client understand their real estate options. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, it was a company called Soft Choice, and it was really cool. Um, the you know, this was serendipitous that um, the guy who's running the workplace for Soft Choice used to work at Collier's. His name's Jeff Gwinnett. Shout out to Jeff. He's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was in the sort of like workplace strategy division of Collier's. So he had intimate knowledge of the 
brokerage business. And he then moved over in house to soft choice. Um, so he started following my content and I liked it. Um, and that got us to talking and responding to their RFP. Um, and it was for a North American mandate to, you know, help them with all their locations across North America. I think they currently have around 25 or something along those lines. I think they might've already even, Jeff would have to confirm, but I think they might've gone from 40 down to 25 already recently. Downsizing is definitely part of their strategy, um, as as is the case for many occupiers out there right now. Something that I also believe on the brokerage side, we should acknowledge as as happening and not deny and embrace finding ways to help companies do that. There's There's a lot of logical reasons why they would, and there's environmental impacts that are potentially positive from that by people maybe having less office space and distributing the way their workforce. Or or 15 to 20 minute city would be great for the environment for sure. Yeah. So, you know, they have an objective of definitely downsizing their footprint, but it's, it's not all a cost related thing. Um, You know, we need to help them bring work to people, not people to work. I think that that's a big part of what they're trying to do. So they will definitely maintain hubs uh, that they lease themselves in in key markets, um, you know. But then maybe they're going to look to do things like um, little mini regional standard chartered bank IWG partnerships, right? Where they they have a they have a hub, but they also allow for their employees to be able to like tap in to a wide variety of um, you know flex office yeah. options. So whether we go down the road of like a partnership with IWG, whether we talk to Mark Gilbraith at Liquid Space. Um, you know, all those kinds of options are on the table. And then, you know, as a broker, like we used to be able to get away with like just off the back of a napkin, being able to tell occupiers like, you know, oh, if you want to be dense, it's 100 square feet a person. If you want to be in the middle, it's 150. If you want to be, you know, liberal, it's 225. You know, those metrics are just basically thrown out the window now because people aren't even using space anymore right. for like dedicated seating. <laughs> We're not talking about a debt. Da- yeah, exactly. It's like, well, what type of work do you want to do? Right. And yeah. how many? Yeah. 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 So I think it's going to be really important for us to be able to advise customers. Um, we, we need to be really deeply connected to the workplace strategy divisions of our company. We need to be really deeply connected to the agile advisory practice groups that can help facilitate deals like I just mentioned before. So we have to like look for all the resources inside our company and even outside of our company. Um, like I was just talking to these guys at a company called Fast Office and they, they're really cool. They already have like a beta version of like a hybrid workplace where like we can be sitting at a desk in a soft choice office, like across the table from one another with like our real life faces talking to one another as if we're sitting there. So the idea is like if I'm working remotely, I could be sitting at a desk in our virtual office. And if someone wants to like serendipitously tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, come into this meeting. Yeah. that's already in the works, right? So like we got to be like thinking about stuff like that as brokers. And then of course there's applications to that helping them right size their footprints as well. So like it's very dynamic. Like all of a sudden in a year, like it went from just like trying to find somebody a space in a market with no vacancy to like having to think about all the stuff I just mentioned. Yeah. Hmm. So I I understand and most people understand the <clears throat> I'm a broker and my client needs space and the market's tight and I'm going to find the best space I can get and then I'm going to get paid you know for making that transaction happen and I'll get paid by the landlord. Mm-hmm. In the case with soft choice where maybe they're downsizing their portfolio, you're putting people in flex, you're help- how do you get paid on that? What does that look like from a compensation standpoint? 
Yeah. Um, well, the only one I'm confused about, I got to talk to Mark Gilbreth about this. I don't know how he pays <laughs> like, me. How do I get paid? I'm like, how do I get paid, Mark? <laughs> I haven't asked him that yet. I'm just like so obsessed with his vision that like, I don't even know. Maybe I'll just do it for free. Um, <laughs> Mark, Mark has that effect on people. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but look, I mean, I mean, anything other than that, you know, like taking IWG as an example, they're super broker friendly. And so they, yeah. they pay obviously. Um, and then with downsizing still comes deals. Um, you know, obviously if you were running a, a global account that had 10 million square feet that you were managing with a growing real estate footprint with, with headcount, right? Like now headcount growth doesn't necessarily equate to the same amount of real yeah. estate. Yeah. So I think what I, what I think will probably happen is like growing companies are still going to grow their real estate footprint. Yeah. But they won't grow it at the same clip. Yeah. And then, the, and then there will be others that genuinely downsize because they just had way too much real estate to begin with and they weren't utilizing it properly and blah, 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 blah. But there's, you know, those companies, if you, you know, if you had them for 10 years and then they're going to downsize half their footprint, well, you'll make some money along the way, but then, you know, that the value of that customer just went down. If you sort of snipe them away from another broker, well, you know, you don't have to worry about the fact that it got smaller because you're just getting it where it is, right? And you're going to make some money off of it. So there's traditional leasing fees that are still very much available. And then there's flex office fees that are still available. And you know, will a day come where flex office operators are not really paying brokers anymore? I don't know. We'll see. I think that there are definitely some smaller niche flex office operators out there that aren't very collaborative with brokers. Um, that may I don't think that serves them today. In the, in the world that we're in today, I don't think it serves them. If there's a completely transparent marketplace dynamic out there with digital transactions and simple contracts and yada, 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 well, then maybe they don't necessarily need us in the same capacity anymore. But today, I still think there's lots of fees out there. Yeah. I, and I, to your point about, you know, will we ever get to the sort of totally frictionless digital? I mean, people are still, these are still human decisions, right? People are making mm -hmm. big decisions about their space needs. And Someone like you is agnostic in the market, except that I would argue to all of our operators listening that Dave will be favorable to those that pay. So, you know, our niche members of a local market that don't want to interact with brokers or don't understand. And that's one of the reasons why I was looking forward to talking to you is I think there, I think there is a gap out there around brokers understanding how to work with co-working spaces and get paid and co-working spaces, understanding how to be friendly and have broker programs. And we've had Kane, I know, you know, Kane Wilmot yeah, has awesome. been on the podcast and he shared how he worked. I mean, he, you know, he's very broker friendly. Yeah. Yes. He's very broker friendly. Yeah. And he, and it makes sense for him. Um, you know, he, and that's how he fills his spaces and he was a broker. And so he has that great, you know, two-sided approach to the problem. So, I, mm -hmm. so yeah, I was curious about your perspective and I think, I think brokers will, good brokers like yourself who are strategic and forward thinking and customer focused. I mean, that's a little bit of my takeaway from your description. I was like, is Dave not thinking about how he's sending his kid to college? Is he not worried about, about this? Because your immediate response, I can tell you're thinking about how do I serve my client? You know, like, well, let me give you an example. Them? Like, let me give you, before I give the example, look, you should hang are... up and, and call Mark, by the yeah. way. But <laughs> Yeah, Mark, how do I get paid? Um, no, brokers are, are salespeople. So there's so many annoying salespeople out there. I'm not going to like generalize just brokers, but like salespeople get a bad sure. reputation because 
there's a lot of them out there that aren't so great and aren't so customer focused, whether it's real estate brokers or people selling software, right? Yeah. So it's it's understandable that a flex office operator might not be, they might've had a couple bad experiences with brokers and that's totally fair, but I would encourage them to like try to see the forest for the trees and just recognize that as we sit here today, these partnerships are still relevant, even if you have to deal with some crap. Um, but I was going to give you an example. Like, um, you know, I've been talking to a lawyer recently and the person is just so textured with their knowledge. Like, you know, I could go to a commodity person, a commodity lawyer that could maybe get the job done, but they probably wouldn't get the job done for me as well. And also the human touch element, like this lawyer is I, first conversation I'm having with him. He's like, well, you know, we need to do this and we need to do that. It's like, he's like part of me or something. And I'm like, I love this guy. Like he's on your team, totally he's on my team. Right. <laughs> and so like, I, even if it was like the most simple thing ever, which there's it's life still isn't simple. Like technology has not made it that way yet. But even if it was like, I still think there's a good role for a, a human service provider the the unknown for me on the brokerage side is like how will the compensation structure get changed how will maybe the roles and responsibilities of certain types of brokers change will some of them become obsolete maybe yes probably when i don't know um so i th- i think if anything in the near term the compensation st- when i say near term it's maybe 10 years like the compensation structure and some of the deals just might get disintermediated yeah. but i don't think that brokers just evaporate like that doesn't i can't see that happening anytime soon so i'm sure everybody loves to bring this up and i can't resist because my audience doesn't know it can you talk about what you did before your brokerage mm-hmm. life <laughs> yes yeah. i assume that that's not your plan b but who knows <laughs> no so yeah well i was a when I grew up, I was a competitive ski racer. Um, and so I really, for, I was really attracted to individual competition. I, I never really was much of a team sport person. <laughs> there's no I in your team or there's no wait. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I just think, I don't know. I, I maybe like, I, I think I didn't get like, i never got on certain sports teams. I, I even remember in grade four, like a, like one of my teachers like cut me from the grade four soccer team. And I'm like, why are you like now as an adult, I'm like, why are you cutting grade fours from a soccer team? Just like let them play. Like, what is this? Um, so anyway, maybe I had some bad experiences, but then I got into skiing and maybe that's just also because my dad, he was a competitive water skier. Hmm. Uh, so just, I didn't know that was even a thing. Yeah, no, he was like one of the best. I think he was the best in Canada or something. Anyway, he, he got into snow skiing, which then led me to that. And I competed at a pretty high level, but then when I, I, went to university, I stopped. Um, and that just sort of naturally coincided with me getting involved in poker. And so I was able to like take this competitive spirit that I had for individual competition from skiing into poker. Um, and then at university, I basically skated through university. Like, I don't even know how I graduated. I I spent the vast majority of my time playing poker online and partying. Um, and, um, I ended up in my fourth year winning a tournament with about 8,500 players in it um, for 260 grand. And it it just charted me down a completely different path in my life. Like when I graduated from university, like I just didn't need a conventional job, nor did I want one. Um, and so, you know, I remember that I had a lot of certainty at that time in my life. I had more certainty then than I've actually ever had since. Like I was obsessed with poker. It's all I wanted to do. And I did, I had enough money that I, I could kind of go down that road. Um, but I, I had the foresight to know that, like, I didn't want to be playing poker when I was 40, 50 years old. Like, the <laughs> lifestyle didn't really seem even appealing to me. So I felt I'm glad I had that self-awareness. But also what I didn't like is it, it didn't seem very scalable. Like, the only way to 
scale your income was to play at higher stakes and which meant more risk. And I'm just like, okay, so the only way I can make more money is that. And then I have to sit at the table. Like, unless I become a backer myself and invest in other players, mm, okay. I literally have to sit there like, and, and just raise up in stakes and like, I'll still be 50, 60 years old and I'll have to do that. So I was like, that doesn't seem like a life I want to live. So I took on an investor because of that, those thoughts that I had, I could have just done it my own, my own, but I'm like, I probably want to get out of this. So if I want to get out, I'd rather have somebody like be able to get me into the biggest tournaments in the world and try and take a shot. And so I took on this investor or he took on me. um, And I I had that relationship going for like three or four years. um, It was predicated off my interest in playing really large buy-in live tournaments, like in person, because there's a lot of risk associated with those kinds of tournaments. You can't play a lot of them because they require travel and, all that, like, you know, to give you some, uh, to juxtapose it, if you traveled the live online poker or sort of the live tournament circuit, you could maybe play a hundred events in a year. And that's like really onerous and taxing. Yeah. That sounds exhausting. Like you're traveling all over the world to do that. Right. Yeah. You could do a hundred tournaments like on your head in a week. Like that would be like an easy week playing online. Right. And and so the volatility of a hundred games is actually quite a lot. Like, yeah. In a in hundred games, you might really stand to lose more often than you would win. Like you're going to make more money over a thousand games or okay. two thousand games. Yeah. So when you pair the the limited amount of volume that you can play with the increased risk in in money that you're putting up, like it's it's really very risky venture, and it could take like ten years to actually make a profit at it, even if you're good. Okay. So that's why I took the investor because I yeah. knew that, that was the world that I wanted to be playing in. Okay. Um, and unfortunately I never hit it live. I, I was always paying off losses from live tournaments with online winnings. Cause I was able to kind of mitigate risk a lot easier okay. online. Um, and then in 2011, I got sort of steered in a different direction because of the DOJ in the U S they indicted the two largest online poker websites for tax evasion, money laundering, wire fraud, all this stuff. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it just, it just, just it, it sent me on a different path because the player pool in the U S was torched overnight. They were no mm. longer legally allowed to play. Wow. And if a, if a tournament was paying like 20 grand to first, all of a sudden it was paying five grand to first. So I was like, this is Yikes. not a world I want to stay in. Right. Anymore. And then I kind of got into real estate, like from there. It's a great story. So th- <laughs> you might be sick of telling it, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't resist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking at running through my list of questions. So if you were to give flex operators advice, how can, how, what can flex operators do? It can be, you know, any anyone from industrious to, you know, the local boutique space to help mm-hmm. occupiers and brokers kind of better understand flex as a part of a multi-pronged real estate solution. Like you're super proactive. This is your thing. You understand this strategically. Um, you know, do you recommend what Kane is doing, sort of the roadshow? He's really investing a lot of time in local education what would you advise to sort of like in the spirit of making the pie bigger for everyone, right? Like everyone should, should be in the workplace that fits them if that's mm-hmm. the outcome <laughs> and everybody mm-hmm. gets paid the right way. Like mm-hmm. how, how I feel like there's still like a knowledge gap, right? Which is part of, 
your role and why that's not going to go away anytime soon is, is right. Like you have information and you understand who the players are. Um, if you were to give advice to somebody else in another market and say an operator, but how can they help both occupiers and maybe local brokers like get more educated about what's possible? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, as you ask, what can we do in the brokerage side? I honestly think the most important player to educate and get in bed with is the landlords. Mm. Um, I'm I'm such a firm believer that these large landlords that have millions upon millions of square feet should be integrating space as a service into their lease up and retention strategy. Like it should no longer ever be an afterthought, right? Because I actually think the biggest barrier is the one I brought up earlier. Like I'm, I'm out working with a customer. There's two barriers and I'll start with this one. They want some of their own dedicated space, right? Like I'm not going to be able to convince them otherwise. Like they will yeah. not go into a spaces for their entire footprint. And mm-hmm. it's for several reasons. Um, I think whether they're right or wrong, they they want ownership over the build out. They want it to really be their space. And I'm sure there are lots of people in the flex office sector that'll say, I can go deliver that for you. Don't worry. No problem. Some of them are right. And some of them are not. They're talking out of their butts. Um, <laughs> but that's a distinct reality that companies yeah. still want some ownership of their space. So if the buildings had more of an integrated flex solution in the asset, it would make it a lot easier for brokers to be able to advise on, you know, hey, like keep, you know, why don't you put this XYZ into a flex office operator or that, hey, there's a convene in there. So like, you don't need to build these meeting rooms into your space. Like you can purchase those on demand. Like this to me is the biggest fundamental problem. Um, So it's really, I think, educating the landlords. And if you're a niche uh, flex office operator, I think that's going to be really hard for you without actually having a broker partner that understands the flex office sector because some like someone from CBRE who knows what they're talking about coming along and speaking to a landlord with you can legitimize that conversation. If you're convened, if you're industrious and like you have like, you know, real estate finance gurus that like live inside your organization that <laughs> used to work for landlords and they know the vernacular and everything, they can kind of go have a lot of that dialogue on their own. But whether you understand that stuff or not yourself as a niche player, it's going to be really hard for you to create that legitimacy without maybe a banner behind you at this point, such as CBRE. So I think that that is important. The challenge will also will become, especially if you're doing management agreement deals, is how do you actually pay that broker? Um, It'll either, you know, I think it makes sense if you're going to partner up with a broker that you agree upon some kind of fixed fee that that broker will get um, for helping you take on a new location, um, whether that's related to the size of the space that you take on or it's just fully fixed, like those are all points to negotiate. But I think the broker needs to know that they get paid, whether they get paid by you or it can get built into the deal, like that's a negotiable point. But Totally. Still still a lot to figure out there for sure. Yep. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of the thing I would say first is like, it's about the landlords having more mm. inventory in their footprints yep. and that then makes it easier for brokers to advise. Um, the education piece is tough. I mean, because you're going to go sit in the boardroom, maybe it's, <laughs> this is maybe better to do virtually. So you don't waste your time, like sitting in the boardroom of like a bunch of brokerage firms where like half the people are 
eyes closed, ears shut to what you're actually saying. And they're there for the free sandwich. Right. Um, <laughs> like, um, so maybe that's better done virtually, but I think if, if we can focus on landlords getting more inventory in their footprint, the rest can just solve itself. And then the other thing is, is finding ways to make the pricing in the flex office sector more sustainable because like what I've noticed is a lot of my customers will pick a sublease over a flex office option, mm-hmm. even if the even if like certain terms are more favorable with the flex office, you know, like maybe non-financial terms, um, because they're just like, well, I can go and move into this other space for like 30, 40% less, you know, especially in a market like we're going to be in for the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, and there's a guy, there's a guy I want to plug in Toronto. His name is Mark Go, G-O-H. He's a company called Clear Space. He is unfortunately for everybody getting out of the flex office game. And he is really more of like the most efficient design build construction guy that's out there in the market. But what was really interesting to me about him, he's only local in Toronto. He has about 80,000 square feet. Uh, you should interview him, by the way. He's, he's phenomenal. <laughs> um, but he's got about 80,000 square feet of inventory in Toronto, all of it on traditional leases. But what was wild is if Notel was in our market or WeWork was in our market and they were charging, like just, I'm going to talk in dollars per square foot for a second. If they were charging an enterprise customer like 100 or 110 bucks a square foot, he was doing it for like 75. And the reason he was able to do that was the efficiencies of his design and build. He was controlling that entire process with no intermediaries Mm. in between. Mm. Interesting. He's like this anarchist and like, he he was basically leasing office space at like seven, eight, ten dollars higher than like the rental rate directly with the landlord. It was insane. So it he never had a day of vacancy before COVID because of this. Never had a day on eighty thousand square feet. He was only doing private suites for okay. like sort of whatever Series A companies or whatever. Yep. He never had a day of vacancy, and that's why because he just found a way to like control the entire design build process. So I don't think that everybody's gonna be able to do that, but there's a lot of like costs to actually design and build out the space. And then there's maybe too much overhead, you know, that the, that the flex office operator has on their balance sheet and all those factors. I don't know if greed's a factor, but like all those factors end up making the pricing um, sometimes untenable. So that's my other one. Yeah. It, they have to value the service. Does, is Marco, are Marco spaces serviced or are they expect suite type. I mean, they're serviced, but not necessarily to the extent as like, you know, like there's a great guy at spaces here. His name's Praveen. Like I call him and I'm like, Hey, like there's no parking spot for me. Like, where can I go? And like, he's delivering my, like my, I just ordered like Uber eats today. He brought it up to my office. Like there's not any of that going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. but there's it's somebody to keep the space clean. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yep. So, uh, one last question. What does the industrious investment mean for CBRE kind of across the portfolio? Well, I'm not like in the meetings. Um, I guess yeah. I'll speak like high Your level. First, yeah. So high level, I think it's phenomenal. Um, it validates a couple of things for me. One, it shows that it's not easy to do this. Yeah. Um, you know, CBRE has made a big investment in the HANA offering I can't comment and I don't know. And it's not a matter of like whether I know. I don't know whether HANA will remain its own um, brand or it'll get rolled in. I've heard that it's going to get rolled in, but I don't know. Um, so I think it just sort of says, look, like even a CBRE, you know, 
would rather potentially acquire than continue forward with that plan. And so that says like, this is not some business like snapping, snapping your fingers, right? This is operationally intensive. Yeah. It, you know, it requires, you know, an acumen that's analogous to an amazing hotel service provider. Like this is not just some like, you know, white, you know, anyway. So I think that's really great validation for what all you guys do. Um, and then I think it just legitimizes this whole thing substantially. Like it, it, it is a major, you know, um, they're waving at all the landlords saying, Hey, like make this part of your lease up and retention strategy. This is not an afterthought anymore. You're going to have to find a way to build this into your portfolios. So I think that is incredible, uh, for everybody involved. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want me to cover on that. But yeah, no, I was just curious about, yeah, kind of your perspective. I think our my audience certainly thinks it's a great sign and, and agreed, validates on a lot of fronts um, and gets the brokerage community, you know, presumably more engaged and, and more educated, right? All the folks in CBRE who are referring folks to industrious locations, presumably that picks up in some way. And they'll understand, you know, the broader flex offering better. So I think it's great. Mm-hmm. Dave, I promised, I well, I didn't really promise myself, but I keep getting thinking that I might make my episode shorter, but mm-hmm. I have guests like you and I have lots of questions. So I appreciate you taking the time. No problem. For your perspective and, um, you know, what you're up to in the marketplace and, and give us a little kind of inside scoop on what some of the, you know, more forward thinking brokers are, are working on. So thanks for joining us today. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.